So, beloved, go ahead, up and, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Isaiah 42. And um, we're going to look at verses 10 through 17 tonight. Um, but, and it's so it'll be a little bit shorter than it normally is on Wednesday nights, but don't get any ideas. It's not going to stay that way. Um, but I want us to go back and I want us to read from verse 1 because the, what we're going to look at tonight is the doxology that's in response to uh, the declaration that is made in verses 1 through, through 9. So let's read this all together. We'll read verse 1 through verse 17, and then we'll pray, and then we'll look at this. Isaiah writes, and it's the Lord speaking, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass and the new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it. The coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out. Like a mighty man, like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light. The rough places in the level ground. These are the things I do. And I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols. Who say to metal images, you are our gods. Wow, let's pray. Father, we ought to be a joyful singing people when we consider everything that you have accomplished for the praise of your glory and for our redemption. Father, that you would send forth your chosen servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, to do what we could not do, to be what we could never be, to accomplish on our behalf what we could never accomplish. Lord God, that you have sent your Son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
Lord God, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That is, that is something, Lord God, that, that should never become commonplace to us. And forgive us when it does. Forgive us when the work of redemption does not occupy the place in our hearts and our minds that it ought to. When Christ does not hold the primacy of place that He should have in our hearts. When, Lord God, we are not overcome with praise and with just adoration of Your great glory. Thank You, Lord God, that You have accomplished it all. That You're the one who's done it. That Your redemption of us was a very personal thing. And it is a very personal thing that, Lord God, you, you didn't accomplish our salvation, you know, by, by some esoteric means, by some, you know, theoretical means. Lord, you accomplished it at the giving of your son. And Lord Jesus, you, you won our salvation um, on a field of battle that we couldn't even imagine. So we thank you and we give you praise. I pray, Lord, that as we just consider these words tonight, You will create within our hearts a great desire to worship You as we should. That, Lord God, You would create within us an even deeper trust in You. Lord, that we would not be dismayed or disheartened or discouraged as we live in this world. But the Father, we would live here with the confidence that we belong to the One who has won the ultimate battle. And Lord, it will be revealed one day for every single eye to see. Every single eye to see. And Lord, everyone will confess. Everyone will confess Lord God, whether it's, it's in great joy as those who have been redeemed or, Father God, in anguish as those who have been vanquished, all will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, Lord, let us do it gladly now. I, I praise you for this time. I pray, Lord God, that you would grant me just the unction of your spirit to clearly teach this text. Father, that you would give life to these words that I'm going to speak and that, Father God, by your spirit, you would... You would awaken the hearts of everybody here to receive these words with gladness. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, beloved, we're in this great section, right, of Isaiah. This grand introduction, really, to the chosen servant, right? The first of the four servant songs. And it's a description of the Lord Jesus Christ that's really far beyond anything that we have seen so far in Isaiah's prophecy. And when we were looking at it last week, right... We remember, we saw that the servant of the Lord is himself God's answer to the sin and the idolatry and the failure of the nations of Israel and Judah to keep covenant with him, right? But also to the spiritual and the depravity and the, and the darkness of the elect from all the nations, right? Which includes us. And so we see here this picture of the Lord Jesus Christ as the perfect Israel, right? as the one who keeps all of the covenant, right? As the one who, who is perfect and always pleasing to the Lord in a way that the nation never was. And so he answers in himself the needs of, of the Jewish remnant, right? But we also saw him as the perfect man that Adam failed to be, right? The, the one who upheld the, the initial covenant of works, you know, with Almighty God. And so thereby he answers the need of, of the gen, of Gentile humanity as well. And so what we see, right, when we're looking at this, is that what fallen Israel and the spiritually dark Gentile nations needed was a Savior. They needed a chosen servant sent from God who is God in human flesh. And, and we see it, right? In fact, I love this section back here when, when, when the Lord Himself describes, just look at it really quickly with me again, where the Lord Himself describes um, 
you know, the father describes his relationship with the son. Um, you know, again, I think probably a, a reference to the pactum salutis when he says in verse six, I am the Lord. Right. And he says to the servant, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people or on behalf of the people, a light for the nations, the Gentiles to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Right. And so what we understand from that is apart from the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we remain blind. Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, we remain, we remain prisoners of sin. Apart from the work of the servant, man, there is no life. There is no life. And so that's the whole heart of this. And so when we look at it, we see that, you know, the, the, the first servant song, it's good news for the elect of every nation, but it was good news to the remnant in Israel first, right? And so God's healing and his saving work through his servants is going to begin with them and then it's going to overflow to the needy world, right? That's the idea here. And so this song of God's redeeming servant, interestingly enough, is followed by this immediate doxology. Now, here's the interesting thing about that. When we look at all four servant songs, we're going to see the same thing repeated. We're going to see here's the servant song and then there's a doxology immediately after it. So if you haven't figured it out, here's the song and you ought to rejoice in it, right? And that's the idea here. So I want to take a look for a look tonight at this first one, this command to sing a new song. Right. And I want you to see how Isaiah describes this. He begins by saying in verses 10 through 12, these words, look at him. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. Right? The picture we're given is, here's this promise of the chosen servant of God. And what that ought to cause is great rejoicing throughout the entirety of the known world. Okay? Now, as I mentioned, this new song is prompted by what immediately precedes it, right? The announcement of this servant who's going to bring God's justice to the earth, who's going to manifest God's grace and his glory in a way that's been previously unheard of. And it's because God's servant will make God's salvation available to the whole earth. That's the reason that the prophet is caught up in this whirlwind of joy and praise that calls on earth's inhabitants to join with him in singing, right? We saw this. We see this, for instance, with Paul, right? When we get to the doxology in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, he gets done describing the glory of God's redemptive work, the, the wonders of the gospel in intricate detail. And it immediately leads him to a song of praise, right? It immediately leads him to, to rejoice from the heart, right? And you see, I want you to notice here the progression that, that, that Isaiah goes through as his call to praise moves from the ends of the earth to the interior of the, the, the earth, right? In other words, look at it. It starts with the end of the earth, right? And then the sea and the coastlands and then the deserts and the cities and then the villages and then the mountains, the regions that are far off and close at hand, Kedar and Selah. People everywhere are called to join in this song of praise, whether they're on the furthest seas or they're in the highest mountains, right? Everybody is called to give Praise. Now, I want to give some definition to those words, praise and glory, okay? That word praise is, is, is a word that describes 
a song that declares the deeds and the attributes of God. Okay? Like a praise song deliberately focuses on the deeds and the attributes of God. That's a key part in understanding this. Okay? So it's not like, you know, sometimes when you turn on Spirit FM, if you do that, I don't. But if you do, you listen to some of those songs, right? And like, you're not even sure what they are. Isn't that true? Like, I mean, I, sometimes I listen to those songs and I'm like, is, is this guy singing to Jesus or is he singing to a girl? Or vice versa, you know? And, and, it, and, and, and the songs become more about me and how you make me feel. And, you know, all the things that I can do because of you, right? And all of that other stuff. And, but what, what the idea of a praise song is, is that it's a song that declares the deeds and the attributes of God, not you. Not you, right? And then the other thing is that we're all called to give glory to the Lord. And that idea of a song of glory is a song of His honor, a song of His splendor, a song of His abundance and His riches, a song of His weightiness and His gravitas as the one true God. That's the idea. So the key thing to see here is that these songs are not about the people who are singing it. They're entirely focused on Almighty God, right? And the specific song that, 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 that it's described here, or that is this called for here, is a new song. And throughout Scripture, the idea of a new song is one of salvation and redemption. And lots of times it carries with it the, the, like some, some sort of eschatological tones. In other words, lots of times new songs will talk not only about salvation and redemption, but end times and final judgment and, and the consummation of the eternal kingdom, right? And so at the very least, what we can say is this praise refers to, at least in this, in this you know, small, you know, small perspective, it would refer to the, the judgments of God against the nation of Babylon that lead to the promised return from exile of, of, of his people, his remnant, right? Because never in history had any people returned to their homeland from either an Assyrian or a Babylonian exile. And so in that sense... God's rescue of the remnant would be a new thing calling for a new song, right? But clearly, there's more in view here than simply the return from the exile, as awesome as that is, right? That return matters, but the reason it matters is because it heralds a deliverance whose ultimate implications are worldwide, right? In other words, there's no creator but the Lord, And therefore, there's no redeemer but the Lord, right? And if he has shown himself to be faithful and gracious to the remnant in Israel, he will indeed show himself to be faithful and gracious to the elect from the whole world. And so the idea is that deserves a song of praise. That deserves a song of praise that has never been heard before. And I want us to think about this for a second, right? This whole idea of singing and why do we sing? Do you ever wonder why it is that the Christian faith is a singing faith, right? A lot of faiths around the world are not. They might be chanting faiths. They might be, you know, groaning faiths. They might be, you know, I don't know what else to, moaning faiths. But they are not singing faiths, right? Christian faith is a singing faith. Why is that? Well, I just want to bring to your attention three things, really. First, that singing is proclamation, that it's declaration, and that it's encouragement, okay? So think with me about this, right? Singing is, first of all, proclamation, right? The people of God, when you read through Scripture, right? And that's why, you know, people that stand in a worship service when we're singing and do this, 
or who sit, you know, and bury their heads down like this, you know. I'm not saying there's not times for that, but who do it repeatedly. Or who are flipping through their Bibles or looking at the bulletin or whatever else, right? I I don't understand that heart. I I don't get it. And the reason I don't get it is because Scripture is very clear about the commands to praise God, right? We have always been, the people of God have always been instructed and commanded and encouraged to sing God's praise. For instance, Psalm 30, right? Starting in verse 4. Sing praises to the Lord, O you His saints, and give thanks to His holy name. For His anger is but for a moment, and His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. So sing. That's the idea, right? Elsewhere, the psalmist writes in in Psalm 67, "Let Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and you guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Right? Christians are a singing people because God must be proclaimed to the world. And one of the ways that we do that beyond preaching is singing scripture-laden songs. Right? It's a necessary thing, right? It's, it, it's, been, it's been part and parcel of being the people of God since the people of God came into existence. Okay? Moreover, beloved, singing is declaration. And what I mean by that is this. Think about the world that we live in, right? Our convictions are in complete opposition to the course of this world, are they not? During any given week, we encounter any number of worldly philosophies that present to us a distorted view of reality and of our identity, right? But when we sing together as the people of God, We are exposing and rejecting the lies of this world. When we sing of this one true God, right? It is our determined and deliberate defiance of the distortions and the lies of this world. That's what it is. To confess Jesus as Lord, right, when we get saved, is to forsake all other masters, right? But to sing Jesus is Lord is to join the battle cry of saints across the globe in declaring our faith and our hope is in our identity is rooted in God the Father, in our Lord Jesus Christ, and in our union with the Holy Spirit, right? We declare who God is and that we belong to Him, right? And then the third thing is this. Singing is encouragement, right? Think about what Paul writes over in Colossians 3.16 when he says this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, okay? That's one way you do it, right? Through the preaching, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God, right? Here's the deal. If we want the word of God to dwell in us richly, not only do we gather, right, to hear the word of God preached, but we gather to teach and to remind one another of the truth of God through singing. See that? We're not singing alone, right? And neither are we living the Christian life alone. Alone. So when we sing together, here's what we're doing. We're singing vertically to our Heavenly Lord, right? But we're also singing horizontally to one another and encouraging one another in the truth, right? It's a simple way that we edify one another just by singing scripturally truthful songs. So when you're tempted not to sing, even if your voice is horrible, God doesn't care. God is the one who gave you that voice. Right? No, seriously. Like, sometimes people say, like, I don't sing because my voice is terrible. Well, God gave you that voice. It's the one you're stuck with. Do the best you can. Right? I mean, just do it. Right? Yeah, Jesse. 
emphasis in so many churches is so bent one way is that there's an audience of one. Yeah, yeah. That's false. Right, right. Our primary audience is God. But there's a secondary audience, our secondary benefactor of our praise. And that's the body of Christ, right? So here's the deal, right? Singing, beloved, is essential to honoring God and to encouraging one another. So let's do it, right? But here I want us to see the immediate cause of the praise is what? It's the recognition that although God may often appear to be silent and inactive, he is anything but, right? I mean, that was the whole thing. Like when the, the, remnants, the, the remnant was in Babylon, they're like, man, how can this ever come to pass? And God's like, don't worry, I've got it. You know, I've had it since before creation, right? At the right time, in the right circumstance, God bursts forth on behalf of his own. And, and there's no difficulty. Neither the seeming you know, strength of his foes, nor the weakness of his people that presents the slightest hindrance to his faithful and gracious actions. And here's why. The reason is this. It's because, as verses 13 through 16 tell us, the Lord is a warrior and a redeemer. Right? Now, i got to confess, being a kid growing up, I was always really partial to superheroes. I loved superheroes, right? Like, from the earliest that I can remember, I was a Batman fan, right? And I think it might be partially genetic. Like, the first time Sam ever saw a Batman figure, right? And he, he had never been exposed to Batman at all. The first time he saw a Batman figure, he was like, oh, that's cool, right? And it was at another kid's birthday party. And I'm glad he didn't fleece it. I, you know, <laughs> he didn't steal it. Thank God. You know, but so this description of the Lord as a warrior to me is one of those ones that just, I love this description. I love the description of God as shepherd. Don't get me wrong. But man, I love the description of God as a warrior, right? And, and I want us to just look at it. The imagery here is awesome. Verse 13, Isaiah says, the Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. Oh, I love that, right? The, the phrase I want you to see here that I want to point out immediately is that the word mighty man is the Hebrew word gabor, G-I-B-B-O-R, okay? It is the exact same word, beloved, that's used in Isaiah 9-6 to describe the Lord Jesus Christ as mighty God. And so that's deliberate. And, and, it, and it ties Christ to this description here of the Lord going forth in battle. So in other words, the picture is this, is that the servant, right, is both man and God. And when he goes forth to battle, it's the Lord who goes to battle. And specifically, that word Gabor means champion or hero or one who is brave and strong, right? And then that phrase, man of war, describes a warrior, one who fights, one who goes forth to battle. So the idea is this. Here's the picture that the Lord is, is drawing for us. It's that he is going forth to battle as a hero warrior, and he is going to be victorious over his enemies. And in fact, that comparison of the Lord to a warrior is in fact one of the oldest ones in the Bible, Right? Psalm 24, verse 8 says, Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Right? That's a reference to Christ. He's the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, Deuteronomy 10, 17, who fights on behalf of His people. In Proverbs 21, starting in verse 30, says, No wisdom 
No understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. I love that. That is, I just want my, man, whenever I start looking at the garbage that's going on in our world, and I do daily, and then I chastise myself for wasting my time, right? I continually remind myself that our God is a mighty man of war. That the Lord Jesus Christ is, is, he is, he is the mighty God. And everyone is going to give an answer to him. And I am, I praise God for that reality, right? But I want us to say a couple more things. The, the, the picture of God here as a warrior preparing for battle is one of those sort of universal kinds of imageries, right? And, and the picture's familiar, like in any, in any culture that you can relate to this, right? The warrior, you know, stir, first stirs up his zeal, right? He puts himself in that right frame of mind. He considers all the wrongs that the enemy has done to him and, and to those whom he loves. And then he sets his mind for all that he's going to have to face in the battle. For everything that he's going to have to overcome. And then he steps onto, you know, that field. The field of of battle. Focused on rescuing and saving his people. And at the moment of attack, he lets out sort of that great cry, right? Both to fortify himself and to terrify his opponents, right? And then he displays his might, prevailing over them by his irresistible power right the lord is a warrior right and so this announcement of the servant prompts this hymn of praise because of god's saving activity only here's the interesting thing right when we consider the saving activity of the lord jesus christ it's in two parts isn't it it's in two parts right when He first appeared. This mighty delivering warrior appeared to destroy the enemies of God. At first, the blood that stained his garments was his own. Right? It was his own. The redemption of his people required the shedding of his own blood. And so he takes on himself the sins of God's people and in his own death destroys those sins and triumphs over Satan. Right? But when he comes again, the blood that stains his garments will be that of his foes. When he is announced and revealed from heaven as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so there's a two-part you know, picture of this saving work of Almighty God through the Lord Jesus Christ. But it will be done. And then notice the imagery shifts somewhat. Right? Not somewhat. It shifts a lot. It shifts to a woman giving birth, right? But the intensity is still the same, right? And the Lord Himself speaks. Look what He says. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant, right? The picture here, right, is is that of God's heart for his people. And it gives us a sense both of his urgency and his divine convictions. I want you to see this. It's not just a promise that God will fight for his people. It's his own promise, right? That he's going to bring to pass. And so God's own self-restraint. Think about this for a moment, right? Think about the restraint of God from the moment of the fall in the Garden of Eden until the perfect timing in which he sent his son. 
That's great restraint, isn't it? Think about the great restraint of Almighty God from the time that sinful man has put Christ to death. He's risen from the dead. He's ascended unto the Father's right hand until the day of the full and coming judgment. That is great restraint, right? But the idea here is that self-restraint will come to an end. And he'll no longer hold his peace, but he will bring his purpose to full accomplishment. The idea is like, like a woman in labor, right? Who brings forth her child at the proper time, right? With irresistible strength and labor, right? God will do the same, right? That's the idea here. And the result will be an entirely new world order. Look at it. It'll be a transformation of things from what they are now. Look what he says in in verse 15. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. Now, what's he saying there? What's the picture? Is this a literal thing? No, it's figurative. This, the mountains and the hills and the vegetation, the rivers and the pools, it's not meant to be taken literally. What they are, those things are images of everything that man considers to be solid and secure in the earth, right? We count on these things. The point, though, is this, is that nothing will be able to obstruct God's acting in salvation. Nothing will be able to prevent His mighty hand from moving, right? And nothing is so secure as his declared love for his people. And we see the, the, the heart of that declared love in verse 16. Look what he says. He says, And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. I want you to, now you know where I'm going with this, probably most of you, but I want you to notice here that deliverance can only be accomplished by the God who will not forsake his people. And, and look with me at the personal language of redemption, that is of what God will do. Look what he says, I will lead, right? I will guide, I will turn. The things I do, I do not forsake them. The idea is, God is personally involved in the redemption of his people, right? It's not a proxy thing. It's not done from far off. It's not just sending a, a messenger that's unrelated. It is God himself to act, who acts, right? And look at this, what he says. God will lead his people, those who heretofore have been blind. He's going to give sight. He'll guide them as a faithful shepherd in the path that they haven't known. Well, what was that? Well, the path of righteousness for his name's sake, right? He'll turn the darkness into light, right? The spiritual darkness, you know, the spiritual death into life, restoring their souls. He'll make the rough places smooth. Doesn't mean that there will be no issues or troubles, but the Lord himself will carry us through. There'll be no need for fear, no matter the circumstances, because he's the one who does all that he promises, because he doesn't forsake his people, and therefore goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. That's the idea here. It's the shepherd motif. So you've got the warrior and the shepherd right together, right? This rescue of God's people. It will be accomplished only because of the Lord's power and His grace. He'll exercise His power on their behalf, on our behalf, and He'll perform all that He has promised. He's totally committed to the welfare of His people, however blind they may be, And however dark to their circumstances, he does not forsake us. 
Praise God for that. Redemption's accomplished. In the picture of the woman, you know, of, of the woman in labor with gasping and panting, redemption is accomplished with tremendous effort and at a great cost. And it's the glory of the Lord that he spares himself neither in order to redeem his people. Just as God does astonishing things in his judgment of the wicked in order to set his people free, so he does astonishing things in delivering us. Nothing is a match for him. And as a result of the rescue of his people, right, as it regards idolaters, the consequence is this. Look what he says, verse 17. They are turned back and utterly put to shame. They're rejected is the idea. They are rejected. They're sent away in shame. They're sent away, right, in scorning. They're sent away, those who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. They're put to shame. Why? Here's why. Think about it. Is there any idol who could or would do such stupendous things as God does for his people? (laughs) The answer to that is what? Of course not. (laughs) Of course not. Why? Because they're not alive. Because they are unable to alter the shape of the future. Because their power is imaginary. That's why. The idols can never transcend their deadness. And those who follow them can never transcend their blindness. So everybody who trusts in the gods of this world must eventually be disgraced. There's no other option. They must eventually be disgraced when it's shown that what they trusted in is worthless. But it won't be that way for those who believe in the true God. Whatever may be the questions along the way, whatever may be the trials, whatever may be the hardships, listen, whatever we might encounter on the last day, we who have faithfully committed ourselves to the Lord will find our trust vindicated. That's the whole point. And this new song that we're commanded to sing, right, anticipates really the song of the saints in heaven, doesn't it? I mean, the songs that we sing now aren't going to appreciably change when we get to heaven, are they? No, they're not, right? Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. I think we sing that, right? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, nation, people, and and tongue. I think we sing that. And you have made them, what? A kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. We, We sing that one too. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Those words sound familiar, right? Those are the the words of the new song. So the good news is this, right? We don't have to be discouraged or intimidated by any kind of power that we see out there, whether it's political or economic or military or spiritual. Our God is defined here as an awesome conquering warrior. A God who will bring justice to the nations. And so our calling is to respond to this in the same way as Isaiah did with praise and with worship and with adoration that honors the Lord for who he is and what he does. Right? That's it. I'll close with these words from Charles Spurgeon. I think they're great. He says, in this world we cannot guess in which way deliverance can possibly come to us, but the Lord knows. And he will lead us till we shall have escaped every danger. Happy are those 
who place their hand in that of the great guide and leave their way in themselves entirely with him. He will bring them all the way. And when he has brought them home to glory and has opened their eyes to see the way by which he has led them, what a song of gratitude will they sing unto their great benefactor. Amen. Your thoughts? Anything from this text? Yeah. Yeah. king of all kings like what a king we have and think about kings would rally the troops Mm -hmm. and they would feed off their zeal and their compassion true and you think people like George Washington crossing the Delaware or William Wallace well I knew you were going to mention William Wallace (laughs) I knew it how could you not freedom with that much power and might and glory and majesty and all that yeah I agree man absolutely yeah, I know. That's yeah, I agree. I mean, it's hard. I don't know how you mean remain unzealous when you see the zeal of the Lord, right? It's hard to do. I mean, people do it, but I don't know how you do it. You know? Yeah, Pete, go ahead. So, uh, I was talking about this with Rebecca this past week, and I said, you know how for those of you who watched like all the Avengers movies, it took twelve years to get to that scene in Endgame where where Captain America says, Avengers assemble. And I'm like, imagine that that was actually real and wasn't just some movie scene. The glory of Christ defeating his foe is going to make that look like a faint memory. Just oh, yeah. Like, like, we won't even think of that. And the fact is, is that while he's rallying his army, we're going to watch him put his to death. Yeah. Not us. We're not, I mean, yeah, we're in the fight here, but at that moment, <laughs> he's crushing. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You know, here's the truth. Any good movie steals all of its themes from the Bible. Mm-hmm. That's just the facts, man. Even Rocky. I mean, I mean, seriously, Rocky rips off, you know, the scriptural theme, like all of them, right? I mean, you can just go right down the line. Jesse, what are you going to say, bro? Passivity of God. You know, that God has no emotions, which I think is false. Yeah. However, of course, it's analogical. It is. Compared to humanity's emotions. But the Puritan emphasis sometimes I felt is way. Yeah, like God is some kind of stolid, stoic in heaven who never. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, I mean, read the Gospels. You see the emotions of Christ on display, right? You see God voicing His displeasure, you know, towards towards sin in the Old Testament, clearly, right? His wrath is not impassive. And yet somehow, He's completely happy within Himself. Yeah, yeah. Explain that, please. Nope, sorry. That's, that's beyond my pay grade, brother. Right? Imagine the facial expressions as Jesus is sitting there doing this Right. Yeah, there's such thing as righteous anger, and Jesus possessed it. He also possessed incredible love, right? Wondrous mercy, incredible compassion. Like, those are not void of emotion. Like, action minus emotion is hypocrisy, right? We talk about that a lot. So, all right, Jake, we pray.
All right, thanks. Father God, thank you for, for bringing us here as your people, as your children, as those of you redeemed, to hear your word preached and taught, to, to see multiple attributes that you possess, and that, Father God, how, like, like Dad said, you aren't just some stoic being that is, you know, far, far away. But we can see it here. We have seen it throughout the course of history. Your hand, um, your hand, um, and I, I thank you for it. I thank you for it that you are a, a God that um, is very real, Father God, that is involved with the intricacies of each of our personal lives on an everyday basis. Yeah. And you're a God that, that deserves the utmost glory, the utmost praise, Father God, the devotion of our hearts. Yeah. And I pray that, that is that you are that you are our you are our primacy from beginning to end, from first to last, from the rising thoughts to the thoughts before we go to bed. Um, I pray that you are the primacy of each heart here in this room and for each heart in the entirety of our body, Father God. And I pray, Lord, that I'm, I pray, Lord, as we pray that our hearts would be aligned with your will. That yeah. We know that you hear our, our prayers, each of our prayers, our individual prayers, Father God. And um, you answer them in accordance with your will. And whatever brings you the most glory and whatever you... Yeah. So I pray, Father God, that you know, as we pray, that we wouldn't be distracted by by um, thoughts about work, by thoughts about what's going on um, in our lives, that we would be that we would just be completely completely devoted to the time where we speak to you as your children and you hear us, Father God. So thank you for this time in the middle of the week. I pray that you're glorified in every aspect to the greatest degree possible. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.